0: Well, good morning to you. Thank you again for uh, joining us this morning, and we're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is David. I work with our youth and with our facilities here at Heritage. Uh, and it's my joy this morning to open up the word with you. Well, we're in our Christmas series here at Heritage as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And one of the things you really can't get away from at Christmas time is lights from lights on the Christmas tree to light festivals to candlelight services to houses that I'm pretty sure must quadruple their electricity bill in December from all the lights they put up outside. All over the place, lights are a part of how we celebrate Christmas. I got married last year, and so this is going to be our our second Christmas together, and I can distinctly remember the conversation about lights as we approached our first Christmas together. You see, I grew up in a home that put colored lights on the Christmas tree. But Joanna grew up in a home that put white lights on the Christmas tree. Can you, can you guess where there might be some tension? Here. You see, I thought colored lights were cheery, that they were the proper decorations for a Christmas tree, right? Well, Joanna felt that they were tacky and annoying. <laughs> I thought that white lights were boring and plain but she thought they were elegant, that they were pretty, that they were the only things you should have on a Christmas tree. And so, naturally, we compromised and we got white lights. <laughs> well, whether you like colored or white lights, I think all of us can agree that, that Christmas without lights isn't really Christmas at all. And while well, the Bible also talks about light in the Christmas story... In Matthew chapter 2, we see the light of the star that brought the magi to Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, we see the glory of the Lord shining around the shepherds as the angels appear to them. And in John 1, we see Jesus described as the light of the world. John 1 might not be the first place we go to when we think of Christmas. It's often more of an apologetic chapter, if you will but it's really an amazing statement on Jesus' coming to earth. One scholar said that the first part of this chapter is perhaps the greatest statement concerning the identity and incarnation of Jesus ever written. And while we don't have the familiar shepherds or manger or magi, here we really have an inspired summary commentary on the Christmas story. Verse 14 is probably the verse we know best. The Word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us. It's a pretty good summary of the Christmas story, isn't it? Well, John says earlier in this chapter that Jesus is the light of all mankind. He actually says this several times, and this is really, this picture of light is something that he's going to use throughout his gospel. In chapter 8, verse 12, and 9, verse 5, Jesus says plainly, I am the light of the world. Chapter 12, verse 35, not long before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus indirectly calls himself the light by saying the light would only be with them a little while longer. And then a little later in that chapter, in verse 46, Jesus says that he came into the world as a light so that no one who believes in him should stay in darkness. And so we can see just from these couple of verses that Christmas without light is Christmas without Christ. Christmas without light is Christmas without Christ. John has repeatedly said that Jesus is the light. Jesus claimed to be so on multiple occasions. And, and Christmas is all about Jesus' coming to earth. And so the story of Christmas is the story of the light of the world stepping down into our darkness. And so if we try to remove the light, From Christmas, then really we're removing Christ. And if we're removing Christ from Christmas, then we just have an empty set of traditions that have no meaning and certainly have no hope. And here's my fear this morning I fear that without trying to, we may have removed the light from Christmas. I think at times we may have turned the Christmas season, which is supposed to be celebrating the light coming into the world, into a season of getting and giving presents. I think we've let our world define what Christmas is all about, and our world is clearly interested in all this stuff. I mean, we can talk about the holiday spirit all we want, but at the end of the day, the fact that there are literally loan providers that will give you a loan just to buy presents, that's just ridiculous to me. Um, the fact that delivery trucks and shopping malls are busier this time of year than any other time, I think it makes it clear that for many of us, maybe, Christmas has come, become about the presents. It's become about the stuff. And if the Christmas season for you is about decorations and presents and trees, then, my friend, you have missed the whole point. I'm not saying you shouldn't have those things. I've got a Christmas tree, it's got presents under it, that's, that's fine, but those things are not the point. The point of Christmas is that the Redeemer has come to rescue us. The light of the world has come to rescue us from all the false hopes that can never satisfy our hearts, that, that promise so much and deliver so little. You see, the Christmas story is really bad news before it's good news. It's bad news before it's good news. Because you see, the Bible is very clear that each and every one of us stands guilty before God. We're deserving of His wrath because of our sins, because we've spat in His face. And the Christmas story is only necessary because you and I are in need of a Savior. We needed someone to rescue us. And often that's not something we want to hear, is it? We like to think that we're okay. We like to think that we can make it back to God on our own, as every other religion in the world tries to do. But the Bible says that you are so hopelessly lost in your sin that you need someone to pull you out of it. You are so lost in your darkness apart from Jesus, you have no way of even finding the light. You need someone to step into your darkness. But the good news of the Christmas story is that that someone has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world that stepped down into our darkness and through his perfect life, death and resurrection made it possible for us to walk into the light. See, the Christmas story is the story of the baby Jesus who was born to die, who was born to pay the penalty that you and I deserve to pay. This light that came into the world has given us hope. This light has given us life. You see, this is the true meaning of Christmas. This is what the Christmas story is all about, the light of the world stepping down into our darkness. And so this morning, Glenn asked me to turn to a passage that that helps us understand what we are to do with this light. With this good news of the Christmas story. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. We'll be focusing on verses fourteen through sixteen. That's on page six seventy-seven, if you're using the Bible underneath the chair in front of you. For many, this might be a, a familiar passage. It's roughly thirty years after the familiar Christmas story. Jesus is now an adult. He's he's begun his ministry and This is the beginning of what we call the the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long section of teaching in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' teaching, perhaps some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. In fact, you'll find people who know nothing about the Bible, but they might be able to quote some of these verses. They're very well known. And the section we'll be looking at today is immediately following what we call the Beatitudes. And in those Beatitudes, Jesus is telling the disciples what they ought to become But here, in the section we're going to be looking at today, he's going to focus on what they already are, what they already are. And so let's read what Jesus says here. Please follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so we've seen already this morning that Jesus is the light of the world, but here he actually calls the disciples the light of the world. He had just called them the salt of the earth in verse 13. There's another great metaphor that we're not really going to get into this, this morning, but here he uses another metaphor, and he calls them light. And Jesus uses this metaphor of light to describe what the disciples are to be and to do. And, and so by extension, this light really is describing what you and I are to be and to, to do as followers of Jesus today. And so first, Jesus says that they are light. They are the light of the world. Notice that it does not say that they will be light, or that they can be light, or that one day if they work really hard, they will become light, or if they do X, Y, and Z, they will attain the status of light. No, no, no. This this verb that's used here indicates that this is a present state of reality. This is not a possibility. This is not some future. He says, you are the light of the world. And Jesus in this statement is shifting a cultural understanding, Because Jewish tradition considered Israel and Jerusalem to be the light of the world. And so Jesus' listeners, the disciples, would have thought of the the nation of Israel and the the place of Jerusalem to be light. But Jesus is, is shifting that when He says, No, 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 you are the light. No longer is the light centralized in a place or in a nation, but He says they are the light of the world. And so, as followers of Jesus today... We are the light of the world. And just as the Jews could have expected the nation or the place to be the light, I fear that sometimes we can expect the organization of the church or the place where we meet to be the light. But if we are the light of the world, we can't think of the church building as the place where light resides. And we can't think that the official functions or the official leaders of the church are where light is found if our efforts to reach others with the gospel focus solely on getting them to a service or getting them into an official ministry or getting them to meet with an official leader, then maybe we've forgotten or maybe we just misunderstood what it means for us to be light. Light isn't found there. Light is found in us. We are the light of the world. I try to tell students this all the time. I am not the best person to reach their friends. Their youth leader is not the best person to reach their friends. They are the light that God has sent into their schools, into their communities, into their families. It's not me. The same is true for the rest of us. You are the light that God has sent into your workplace. You are the light that God has sent into your neighborhood. You are the light that God has sent into your various circles of influences. It's not Pastor Glenn, it's not this place, it's you. Jesus uses the plural form of the word you when he says, you are the light of the world. We don't really see that in our English because English is silly like that. So he's, really what he's doing here is he's referring to the disciples as a group. So it's not that each individual there was the light of the world, but as a, as a group they are the light of the world, and, and this means that you and I today are not individually the light, but all of us together are the light. While it's true you might be the only follower of Jesus in a particular time or particular location, you're never truly alone. We're, we're never called to be a tiny light all by ourselves in the middle of a bunch of darkness. That's, you won't find that in the Bible, and there's some practical ways this works itself out. First, it means that we need to be involved in church. I mean, Jesus says that we are the light of the world, so we can't expect to be an effective light if we're all by ourselves. The Christianity of the Bible is never a just Jesus and me religion, although people will try to make it into that. We cannot hope to be an effective light if we are not plugged into the community that God has given us. You see, Jesus has promised to build His church, He did not promise to build your individual ministry. He did not promise to make you some mega light as you're off doing your own thing all by yourself. I mean, why would we not want to be plugged into the only thing our Savior has promised to build? We have not been called to do this on our own. And secondly, this means that we shouldn't view our church as the only light in our area. We should recognize that there are other churches that preach the gospel and we should recognize those churches as partners. We should not see them as competition or as heretics because they do things slightly different than us. You heard a little this morning about an opportunity called Night to Shine that we're going to have next year. Guys, this is why we can do something like that. We can partner with other churches in our area to be a light in our community. And so that is what we are. We are light. But what do we do? Well, there's two main functions of light that I think help us understand what we are to do. First, light reveals what is true. Light reveals what is true. Light has to reveal what is there. It can't hide things. It can only reveal them. Light reveals reality just by nature of existence, just by being light The truth is revealed. And Jesus uses the illustration of a lamp here, saying that the lamp gives light to everyone in the house. And he uses this lamp illustration again in Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, immediately following the parable of the sower. And there he says this, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open you see this is what light does it brings things into the open it reveals what is hidden it drags what is hidden in darkness into the light of day for all to see and so this is what we are called to do in the world or to confess our own sins first and then work to help people around us see sin for what it is. It's darkness that blinds, that hides, that confuses. It's, it's darkness that ultimately will only reap death and destruction. And that does not mean that we go around pointing out people's sin. We won't have to if we're living differently. If we're truly being light, just by being around us people will begin to see their sin as sin because light reveals what is true. It has to. Jesus says in verse 16 that we are to let our light shine before all men so that they may glorify God. And often, we, often we, when we think about being a light, we think of it only as verbally sharing the good news of Jesus. And it certainly entails that. I don't want to in any way diminish that, but it is so much more than that. You see, being a light is really all about living differently. Being a light that reveals what is true is living in light of what God says is true in His Word. Our lives need to be consistent with how God says we are to live. For living the kind of lives Jesus calls us to, we will stand out as a light in a dark world. And so how does Jesus call us to live. Well, I want you to look with me just a few verses up to verse 3 and verse 6 of chapter 5 here. We're not going to look at all that Jesus says here. We don't, we don't have the time for that. But I just want to think for a minute about how countercultural this kind of living is. About how otherworldly this living is. First in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says we ought to have joy and consider ourselves to be blessed, that we ought to be happy when we are poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit refers to acknowledging our spiritual neediness, our spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus says that to follow Him, we have to be people who are constantly aware of our inability to do anything good, to do anything that is righteous, And Jesus also says, in verse six, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We should be people who desperately want to be righteous, who hunger for righteousness. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever missed a meal because I was too busy or just forgot about it. right? Like our, our physical hunger drives us to get food. And Jesus says that in the same way... We should hunger. We should thirst for righteousness. We should be willing to give up things in order to be righteous. We should want it desperately. We should be so satisfied in the righteousness that we've been given in Jesus that the garbage the world plays with in darkness doesn't even interest us. So I just want to think for a minute about how bright our light would shine if we follow just these two Beatitudes. I just picked two. There's a whole bunch more there. There's a lot more that obviously that Jesus teaches us how to live in His Word, but I just want to look think about these two. What other religion in the world starts with saying that you are hopelessly lost in your sin and could do nothing about it? You see, only in Christianity do we see that we are called to admit our spiritual bankruptcy, that we couldn't do it, we couldn't make it back to God on our own. Our gospel stands in stark contrast with the gospel of self-sufficiency or self-righteousness that most of our world wants to buy. Imagine the light we would be if we were always aware that we have nothing good in ourselves. But that despite that, Jesus has given us abundant Life in him. What kind of humility and gratitude would that lead us into? In the midst of a culture that says, Let me get what is mine, we'd be people who are not fighting for our rights, not trying to make it about ourselves, but who are grateful for what God has given us in Jesus. Humble and grateful are far from what we would call most people at Christmas time, aren't they, aren't they? I mean, laying on the horn in the middle of traffic to get that last present at the mall for your brother-in-law that you didn't really want to get, but the society tells you that you have to, and so now you're sitting in traffic, you're mad, you're impatient, pushing people out of the way to get that last Black Friday deal, because after all, it's on sale and we need a new TV. Or wondering if the gift we got someone is in the same category of thoughtfulness and price range. Because, I mean, heaven forbid we just bless somebody without any thought of how, what we're going to get in return. These, that's not humility. That's not gratitude. This is pride. This is greed. This is selfishness. Imagine how much we would stand out if we wanted righteousness more than we wanted power or food or money or possessions or for people to like us. I mean, how strange of a people would we be in Clark Summit if we were known as those people who hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than we wanted, the treasures of this world. Think of the light of the father who doesn't work overtime or will only work so many extra hours because he knows he needs to be home to disciple his family. I mean, his buddies are all working tons of extra hours. They're able to afford nicer Christmas presents, but he would rather pursue his family than simply provide for them. I think of the mom who's willing to give up the opportunity to make her life about her career and making a name for herself as society tells her she's supposed to, because she'd rather raise her children to love Jesus. Or the man or woman who doesn't take a new job primarily based on the salary and benefits, but based on the job being in a town where there's a healthy church that he can get plugged into. Think of the dating couple that has standards that our culture would call medieval because they are not willing to compromise. I mean, even some who claim the name of Christ would tell them, you know, living together is normal today. Everybody does it. It's fine. But they're not interested in, what, in fitting in. They're not interested in the fleeting pleasures of sin. They, they want the joy that comes with purity. They want righteousness more than they want other things. Or or think of the student who's so committed to being involved in church that he turns down jobs or sports or that extra class he doesn't really need so that he knows that he has time to be involved. Guys, our world would call all of this madness, and that's precisely the point. When we live as Jesus calls us to, we'll be a light that reveals the truth. A second, light pushes back darkness. light pushes back darkness. Light reaches out toward the darkness. It, it really can't be contained in itself. It, it naturally is an outgoing agent that affects what it comes into contact with. Light undoes darkness. Light destroys darkness. Where there is light, darkness flees. And I think we can sometimes confuse what it means for us to push back darkness. And so I'm going to try and clarify that for us this morning. It seems that sometimes we think that means that we need to go on the offensive and just like attack and berate the darkness. But light doesn't have to picket darkness. Light doesn't have to social media bomb darkness. Light doesn't have to insult the faulty ways of darkness. Light doesn't have to make fun of darkness. Darkness. Light lives among darkness and just naturally pushes it back. Just by being light, darkness is eliminated. And so pushing back the darkness does not mean blasting political candidates or famous people who don't agree with us. seems that sometimes we turn to, to hate speech and derogatory talk on social media about this candidate or that actor or this singer But the thing is that Jesus loves that person that's being insulted, and he died for their sins. Is the kind of treatment that they're getting shining the light of Christ, or is that merely reflecting the world of outrage and unbridled free speech, as we like to call it, that is all around us? We live in an angry culture, don't we? Is that being a light, or is it just adding to the darkness? Pushing back the darkness also does not mean hating on sinners, quote-unquote. It seems that sometimes we talk on social media about how terrible this or that sin is and how people who practice it are condemned. We mock, insult, laugh at, disrespect transgender people or abortionists or the political party that we don't like. And we can talk about others with what seems to be a complete absence of love for those who are caught in that sin. It seems that maybe we've forgotten that we were once just as hopelessly and totally lost in our own sin. I mean, sure, our sin may have looked better, may have been more societally acceptable, but we were just as lost. Without Jesus, we were just as dark in our own sin. What makes us think we were better off? You see, sinners are not those people out there but really describes each and every one of us without Jesus reality is we're no better. And this hate speech is not what it means to be light. No one has ever been argued or insulted into faith in Jesus. But billions have been loved in the midst of their sin and disagreement and wondered why Christians act so differently. Jesus said the world would see our good deeds, not our angry rants on Facebook or our political stance. Jesus pushed back the darkness with love and with truth. He didn't have to sacrifice one for the other. He revealed what was true, and he pushed back the darkness with his radically different life. He loved his enemies. He called sinners friends. He healed sinners who didn't deserve it. He taught people who would ultimately crucify him. He spent his life serving a group of men who would ultimately desert him in his hour of greatest need. His... He lived a life that was entirely countercultural. And, church, we need to follow his example and live differently. Well, in order for light to be effective in pushing back darkness, it, it has to be around darkness. It might seem kind of like a no-da statement, like, wow, you're a genius. But I think sometimes we forget this. Or we misunderstand. You see, Jesus uses two illustrations in our text to make this point. He talks about a town on a hill and a lamp. If a town is on a hill, it is able to be seen for miles at night. Because of the light that radiates from it. And Jesus says this town cannot be hidden. Its light makes it obvious. We all know it's there. And in the same way, if you have a lamp, you don't cover it up. That doesn't make sense. But you display it so that it gives light to everyone. I mean, you would think I was a fool if I turned on a light only to cover it up. I mean, if it was dark in here and I turned on a flashlight and I just covered it with my hand, you'd say, what are you doing? We need that light. It doesn't make sense to cover up a light. In the same way, our light is not meant to be hidden or kept in a corner, but to be shared. And so church, this means that we need to be in the world. We need to be around the darkness. We need to have relationships with people who do not know Jesus. We cannot be used as light if we have separated ourselves from the darkness. Light is only effective when it is around darkness. A light in the middle of a bunch of lights serves little to no purpose. In the same way, if all we ever do is spend time with other Christians and hide from the darkness, we're serving no purpose. Some people have used Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes that we looked at a little bit of this morning. They've used his teaching as a a license to create this sort of monastic lifestyle where we just separate ourselves and insulate ourselves from the rest of the world. See, Jesus' teaching, as we said, is so countercultural that people have thought, okay, I need to separate myself from the world in order to follow these commands. But Jesus makes it so clear here that we are to be in the world. He says to let your light shine before all men. I mean, we naturally want to spend time with other Christians, and that's a great desire. I hope that you love your small group. I hope that you love your ABF. I hope that you love getting together on a Sunday morning. That's a great thing. I'm not knocking any of that. But too often we've taken this to an extreme where we spend all of our time at church or with Christians, and we don't even interact with the darkness at all. In the youth group here at Heritage, we try to regularly provide opportunities for students to invite their friends so that we can help them reach their friends for Jesus. And over the years, I've had a number of students tell me that they don't know anyone that they could invite. In other words, they don't have any friendships with people who don't know Jesus. They're so separated from and insulated from the darkness that they don't even have an opportunity to be light. In church, I've seen the same thing hold true for adults. See, some of us spend so much time in Christian circles that we don't even have significant relationships with people who are far from God. And some of this, again, can be from a great desire. We desperately don't want to fall into worldliness. That's good. The Bible says we shouldn't want to be like the world. But we need to understand that our greatest threat to falling into worldliness is not the darkness around us, but the sin that still resides in our hearts. The reality is that until we meet Jesus face to face, all of us have a tendency to want what God says will only reap death and destruction in our lives. And it's only the sin inside me that hooks me to the sin outside of me. We really should be more afraid of the darkness within us than the darkness around us. We cannot think that separation from the world is the means to godliness. We cannot think that. The reality is that someone who's totally uninvolved in the world is of no more use to the kingdom than someone who's become like the world. Someone who's compromised. We cannot succumb to some sort of spiritual pride and think that we are better than those who are spending time with Jesus or excuse me, spending time with people who do not follow Jesus, because if, if we're not in the world, we're actually just as ineffective, we're actually just as disobedient to our Savior who said to shine our light. John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying right before his final arrest and trial, he says that he's not asking the Father to remove his followers from the world, but to instead protect them from the evil one. And he goes on to say that he is sending them out into the world as the Father sent him. You See, Jesus could have taken us to heaven right after we got saved. That would have been great, right? But he has us here. He left us here because he has a job for us. He's sending us into the world as light. So Jesus said to let your light shine. So we must not separate ourselves from the world or try to cover up our light, but we need to go into the world as light. In looking at the charge of Jesus, we, we must not create our own little holy huddle that ignores the rest of the world and is ignored by the rest of the world. We must push back the darkness. We must be involved with people who don't know Jesus. We saw earlier from John that Christmas without light is Christmas without Christ. Well, here in Matthew, we've learned that Christians without light are Christians without Christ. And Christians without Christ are not Christians at all. Jesus said that as followers of Him, we are the light of the world. So, if we're not the light, we do not follow Him. We do not have His light in us. I mean, yes, there's, there's things we can do to diminish or try to cover up our light, but if we are not light, we cannot know Christ. So, if you're here this morning and you see that there's no light in your life, please run to Jesus. You don't have to pretend. You don't need to put on an act of following Jesus around Christians while pursuing your own thing in private. The light of the world has come to redeem you from that exhausting facade. You don't need to make it look like you have it all together. You see, the good news of the Christmas story is that Jesus has stepped down into our darkness and our brokenness in order to redeem us. So, Heritage, this this Christmas, as you sit around your Christmas tree and you enjoy the lights, allow them to remind you that Jesus is the light of the world that has stepped down into our darkness and He has called us to let our light shine before all men. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus to be the light of the world, that he stepped down into our darkness in order to redeem us. Oh God, thank you so much for the light of the world. Help us to remember, really in this Christmas season that is so obsessed with The darkness of materialism and possessions, that we can be a light, that we can shine our light before the world. Help us to be people who reveal what is true. Help us to be people who push back the darkness. God, thank you for the light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.